Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Situation critical with no water to sterilize surgical tools and a hospital overflowing. With patients, a surgeon in Gaza City tells us he is facing crushing choices about who he can save and who he can't. No one left behind. Activists who spent months protesting against Israel's government are now putting all their energy into trying to find the hundreds of people who've been missing since the Hamas attack. Write up a new prescription. A doctor in Washington, D.C. says black residents in his city are disproportionately dying of overdoses. So he is urging officials who have $80 million in opioid settlement money to spend to take a fresh approach. The Riel deal. Manitoba's premier-to-be says one of his first priorities will be designating Louis Riel as the honorary first premier of the province. The president of the Manitoba Métis Federation says it's about time. Getting his message lacrosse, the International Olympic Committee adds five new sports, including lacrosse, and that is a huge score for our guest. And fasten your seatbelts. Our feud with a giant entertainment corporation reaches Disney New Heights, Now that it is unveiling a film version of the story we've been airing for over 40 years, The Shepherd. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that warns them, like a plane in fog on Christmas Eve, that is not going to fly. In Gaza, food and water are running out, but the worst may still be yet to come. And I'll warn you now that the interview you're about to hear contains disturbing sounds and details. The strip of land has been under fire from Israel since the Hamas attacks. About a million residents have been warned to leave the northern part of Gaza ahead of an anticipated Israeli ground invasion. In hospitals, doctors are struggling to find supplies and space to treat their patients. Ghassan Abusita is a British surgeon working in Gaza City's Al-Shifa Hospital, We reached him there earlier today. Doctor, I can hear the situation around you. Can you describe what's happening to our listeners? um, This is one of the uh, wounded children. She's just come out of the operating room. She's lost several members of her family. And it's just a combination of the trauma and the pain. Um, And this is our daily routine. We have around 10 uh, operations per day. How old is she? How old is this girl? She's in her teens. I think she's 13. Are you able to help the patients who are still coming in? Less and less so every day. Today we went, uh, we took our uh, surgical sets to the central 
uh, sterilization uh, room at the hospital and we were told that the uh, um, sterilizing machines are no longer working as a result of the drop in the water pressure in the hospital and so the hospital seems to be running out of water and we've had to revert to using chemical disinfectants like they did in the 70s and 80s. So what will that mean for the patients who come in now? The increase in the risk of infection, the gradual breakdown in uh, uh, medical care as as basic as it was before, it will become even more uh, uh, rudimentary. You know, um, we're completely dependent on generators. Uh, our medical supplies are running low uh, and the staff are absolutely exhausted. Um, we've had 14 doctors killed, 13 nurses killed. Many of my colleagues uh, have had family killed or have lost their homes and their families have become homeless and staying with, with members of their families and, and just physically exhausted. You know, the emotional toll that takes, the physical toll that takes. In fact, 40% of them are children like this patient. You can hear screaming behind me. It's just been unremitting and it's about to get worse. How are you coping with everything you just listed? Um, you go from uh, patient to patient and the adrenaline gets you through the day. We finished last night operating around 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, and you take it one day at a time. Are you it's sleeping tough. at the hospital? I'm sleeping in the operating room. There's no room anywhere else to sleep. So at the, after the last case, I just kind of fix one of the trolleys and, and I sleep there. What kinds of injuries are people coming in with? Absolutely horrific blast injuries, shrapnel wounds, uh, flying masonry, people being crushed underneath the rubbles of their home. Um, you know, just horrendous multiple, multiple trauma. How did you make the decision to stay, doctor, given the warnings from Israel to get out? Our commitment, our commitment is, is, as doctors is towards our patients uh, and our commitment is towards uh, protecting them and serving them the minute they become our patients. Um, we can't leave. We uh, we can't turn our backs on these patients. Um, the decision to stay is 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 born out of uh, a commitment to serve the people we've come to serve. You said it's about to get worse. How are you bracing for that? Nothing. Just. Uh, uh, we hope that the international community stops the carnage. We hope that the international community stops what it knows is a level of slaughter that has been unseen if there is a land invasion. You know, Gaza is the world's most densely populated place. If the Israeli tanks start rolling through, the carnage will be beyond anything anybody has seen. The stresses of seeing lives being shattered the stresses of seeing kids, the stresses of using bizarre terminology like wounded child, no surviving family. We have that as a phenomena in the hospital. Children who have been taken out of the rubble, who are injured, who are the sole survivors of their families. We had two girls yesterday that I had seen that fit that. Over 50 families have been wiped out of the civil register. That means three consecutive generations of the same family have been killed. How do you decide, you know, as, as supplies dwindle and it becomes more difficult to operate, how do you decide who you can treat or if you have to turn people away? I mean, have you had to turn people away? 
we couldn't we can't turn people away but at the same time there are patients sleeping on mattresses in the floors of the corridors of the hospital and in the corridors of uh, uh, the emergency department and on the floors and and not just overnight they're sleeping there for three or four days our patient there are two, over 200 patients needing surgery who have not been able to go to surgery because the, the pressure on the system outweighs the ability of the operating rooms to process them. Have you received any further warnings or information from the Israeli forces about when something might begin? So these, as part of the psychological warfare, have been phoning up uh, uh, hospital directors and telling them to evacuate and threatening that if they don't evacuate the hospitals were, are going to be targeted. You know, targeting hospitals is a war crime. Calling ahead of time and making an appointment to commit a war crime makes it still a war crime. The idea that you can evacuate these people who are, you know, these are shattered limbs, these are broken bodies, these are critically ill patients with multiple injuries. The girl you can hear screaming has both thighs fractured, has multiple shrapnel, has a burn in her back, all of these injuries. Who the hell is going to be able to move patients like this? And why should we? Why should we not be able in the 21st century to ensure that hospitals are uh, out of bounds when it comes to military activity. Do you have any hope that that the outcry uh, and speaking to us as you are that the ground Im- invasion may not happen? That's why I take I make the time to speak to to the media. If we can stop this impending catastrophe, then part of my job is to protect my patients, and part of my duty is to try to stop this happening. And, uh, uh, anymore and stop a further deterioration in the situation. What will happen to the to the young girl, the 13-year-old we've been hearing during our conversation? She, she, need, she needs multiple surgery. She needs multiple, multiple surgeries. She has, uh, you know, this is the first of, of many surgeries she's going to have for years to come. Doctor, thank you very much for your time. Please stay safe. Thank you. Ghassan Abusita is a British surgeon. We reached him in Gaza City. Today, a Hamas spokesperson claimed that the group is holding around 200 people hostage in Gaza and began laying out the terms of a prisoner exchange. But many Israelis are still missing or unaccounted for since the Hamas attack on October 7th. And every day since, hundreds of volunteers have gathered at a convention center in Tel Aviv. Their goal is to do everything they can to help find the people who are still missing. And the reason they were able to mobilize so quickly is that they were already organized to protest against Israel's government. Mickey Reutman is a women's rights activist who's part of the effort dubbed the Civil Aid Headquarters. We reached her in Tel Aviv. Mickey, what made you and the other activists shift gears, shift focus to help look for those who are missing? I think, first of all, we we all love this country and we were fighting very hard against the judicial reforms because we love this country. And therefore, it was just clear that when our country needed us, we'll be there and we'll do whatever it needs to help both the military and the civilian population with whatever they require. Was there a story you saw in the in those early hours or moments? You know, do you remember when you you all decided together collectively, we need to focus on this now? I think the issue was that we saw that Nobody was really giving us any information and also nobody was giving information to the families 
of those who are harmed uh, in the surrounding of Gaza. So, so it was very important to us that the families will be informed of what happens to their loved ones. So in terms of logistics, how are you working? What are you doing to try to identify people? Well, we have several activities, but one of our activities is actually a center where people review thousands of hours of footage from all over, taken from social networks, taken from videos that the terrorists themselves released, and trying to piece together who is hurt, who is held hostage, and trying to find all the missing people. So we do that using uh, AI technology in order to do face recognition, to try to identify different articles of clothing, tattoos, other distinguishing marks, in order to find out what happened to the people who were there. How many of you are working on this? Well, for that specific task, we have about five to 600 volunteers. For our other activities, we, we still have a few thousands that basically work in three different centers on distributing food and clothing for all these families. I wonder what you're hearing from the families who are looking for information about their loved ones because their loved ones may have been killed, they may have been taken, or they might just be missing at this point. So what kinds of things are you hearing from them? Well, there's a lot of confusion, especially because the government is not responding as well for their pleas. I do understand the government needs to wage a, a war. So we came into this void and basically are trying to provide them with information, with the knowledge that somebody is looking for their loved ones and cares about them. How do you make sure you're not working at cross purposes with any official investigations? Are you are you communicating with we're, authorities? We're, we're constantly in contact with authorities and whatever information we have, we transfer to the authorities. We do not make announcement to the families. That is only done by the authorities. Before this, as you said, you were working on something else. You and the other volunteers were protesting against the government's plan to, to make changes to the judiciary, the court system. And those protests have been going on for, for months and months now. We've covered them on this program as well. So what happens to those protests and that focus for you? I think we are all aware that we are at war. And at war, we all join forces together and we do what needs to be done. And after that, we'll see how we progress. I don't think the sides have changed their political opinions. I just think that currently, this is not something we think that is important to deal with. Currently, it's important to make sure that we win this war and that we actually can provide the help to the families of the bereaved in order to ensure that they're safe and protected uh, in Israel. And how do you make sure that these loved ones are not forgotten? Well, first of all, what we did is is we have people going to these families, uh, social workers. These people basically fled with their shirt on their back. We're, we're providing them with items of clothing, with toys for their children, diapers, uh, food, whatever they require. They're in different shelters placed around Israel, so different hotels, etc. And we're trying to provide them with whatever they need. So, so they send us requests and we try to comply with those. This idea of no one left behind is an important one for you, I know. Can you tell me more about that? I think the concept is, is that we've suffered so much in the past and 
we know the value of each person and the life of each person and we're 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 going to fight for one or for a hundred in the same manner and we we make sure that every family knows what happened to its loved ones because it's also what keeps us united we know that nobody will leave us behind as well is there a, a case where you have been able to help and get a resolution that you can share with us without giving um, names obviously I, None, of course. We do know of some cases where we were able to identify people that were still living, that were in hospitals. And naturally, there are cases where we actually identified people who died. So the main issue is, even if they're dead, is to give closure to the family so that they know that they're not being held hostage somewhere. How long do you think this work will continue? How long will it take to make sure no one is left behind and no one is forgotten? Well, first of all, we need to find everyone. And once we find everyone, I think that's when we'll we'll start working on freeing. Well, we already are working on freeing the hostages, making sure that they get to come back home. You know, I know the government has put in place uh, different measures to put pressure on Gaza. But, you know, humanity is met with humanity. And if they give us our hostages back, these are children and elderly and women and men that have done nothing. And if they'll give us those hostages back, I'm sure that Israel also will be able to do some humanitarian assistance there too. Mickey, thank you for your time. No problem. It was lovely talking to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Mickey Reutemann is an activist with the Civil Aid Headquarters. She's in Tel Aviv. Two days from now, Wab Kanu will take office as the Premier of Manitoba, and he has pledged that when he does, he'll address the legacy of one of the province's most significant historical figures. Speaking at the Red River Metsi Annual General Assembly in Winnipeg on Saturday, Mr. Kanu said that one of his first acts in office will be introducing legislation to designate Louis Riel as the honorary first Premier of the province. The 19th century Metsi leader was executed in 1885, and his story has long been a challenging one for the Canadian establishment. David Chartrand is the president of the Manitoba Macy Federation. We reached him in St. Laurent, Manitoba. David, hearing those words, hearing Wab Canoe say that honoring Louis Riel in this way would be one of his first priorities in office, what did that mean to you? Well, as the best way to express it, uh, I know this is on our, on radio, but to visualize it in, in the context of how it really what it meant to me and thousands of others like me that were in the in the audience, tears came dropping off my eyes. Oh. And this is a, a dream we've had and a passion we've pursued. I personally have pursued it for 27 years as a president. And the closest I ever came was getting his picture onto the legislative assembly. Mm-hmm. I got him a reference as the father of Manitoba, finally by the, in fact, was the NDP government at the time. But I couldn't get the government to commit itself to recognize that it was the free, he was the first premier and the founder of Manitoba. They just would not say yeah. those words. And to this day, it still stuns me. Why not? Because he truly was the first premier and the father of Manitoba. What message do you think it would send to the entire country? I, I think uh, if you look into Quebec, uh, back in... You know, the days of 1885, there was 50,000 people that gathered in Quebec and Montreal. 
and, and protested and, and pleaded with the, the Prime Minister of the day not to execute and murder Riel. In fact, uh, famous line of Johnny McDonald to all Quebecers was, though every dog bark in Quebec, he shall hang uh, against the protest. So and he, he did hang. Of course, they did execute him. And But it's very clear for us, it's been a, uh, a message, uh, you know, like reconciliation is supposed to be a word in this country. And I think the government of Canada is trying to do some changes, and I'm very pleased with some of the changes I'm seeing. You know, we can't change history, but we can correct the wrongs of history. Finally, finally, justice is being played. Uh, even students today, both in university colleges and, and K-12, never have really seen the true story of what happened to Riel in the trial. He did not go to trial in Canada. People don't realize that. He went to trial in Northwest Territories. And the reason that it was played out that way, it was uh, planned by John McDonald and the Minister of Justice that day, that if he came to trial in Canada and found guilty of, of, of treason, he would have went to prison, and that would have been Stony Mountain. Mm-hmm. Instead, they kept him in the territories because they, Hudson Bay adopted old English law of 1300s and used that if found guilty of treason, he had to, of course, be executed. And believing once they silenced him, the West would then be silenced. So, but that was a shocker to all, and it didn't go the way they had envisioned. So I still think today, today we have struggled. Now it's 153 years uh, since Riel founded Manitoba, and finally he got justice. He's got his due. It's fitting that we're reaching you where we're reaching you today, a historic spot for Métis people. St. Laurent is one of our historical Métis communities and a prominent Métis community uh, and still survives today. Uh, still a strong Métis presence, but what, it still has a strong Métis culture. What do you think this uh, news okay. will mean to, to people oh, there? Everybody's ecstatic. There was 4,000 people at our assembly and people listening right across Canada. And uh, the tears were pouring. The cheers were there. Um, uh, the standing ovation came from every citizen that was in, in the building, upstairs, downstairs, in this main hall. And we had so much people there. They were standing up, rolling. You couldn't even fit inside there. People couldn't even find a chair. <laughs> and uh, it was so big, and uh, biggest one of our biggest assemblies. But the pride that was zooming from the people was phenomenal. And I think it even resonated stronger, attaching the struggle that he, he being the first First Nation premier in Canada. It's like, to me, I called him the, the Obama of the First Nations, you know. So for, for him to, to lead that role as the first premier in this country as a First Nation citizen, he rec- recognized his father, who couldn't vote. Yeah. Back, of course, not that long ago. And a generation, generation later, he's being sworn in. It's like, Somehow history is slowly correcting itself in Canada, and I hope it continues to do so to recognize all those wrongs that have caused so much pain, so much hardship, and hopefully this is just the beginning of a change that we all anticipate will, will make its way. And we all have made some beautiful quotes in the past, mm-hmm. and he said, one day this country will recognize me for what I've done. And, and I think we're finally getting that recognition, even though it took 153 years. And there's been, there's been start, so many starts and stops, and you've worked so long on this you just mentioned even personally so are you are you concerned that that there could be an obstacle again this time or do you think this time it is going to be different well the way why put a smile on my face even the question you're uh, mm-hmm. laying out to me it's the same uh, position that i i spoke and set out publicly one of the greatest things we'll see now is the bill that he actually uh, introduced the bill when he was in opposition what well, uh, did which, yes yeah, exactly mm-hmm. and now there's not a doubt it's going to pass. He's got a majority. So and uh, so he's got enough seats. Without question, this will pass. 
And this first bill that he's introducing upon his appointment is going to be, I think, resonating. And I, I tell you, this November 16th, we got in Riel's gate every year mm-hmm. since his body was bought here. And uh, we still still got her 153 years later. We're still there every November 16th, and there will be celebrations. There will be cheers. Every speech I've made, I've always echoed the first premier. So 27 years as president, I've been echoing that at the graveside of Riel. And I tell you, it's going to be a beaming, smiling crowd. And, and I'm sure we're very religious people yeah. and uh, still strong Catholic in many ways. And we have, of course, the different denominations, but we're still prominently Catholic. And I'm telling you, we still believe in that and the afterworld. And I'm sure he's smiling down that, that finally Candace recognized him for being the premier of Manitoba, that he should have always been recognized uh, as what he was. David, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on the show. Thank you very much. Take care. You take care. David Chartrand is the president of the Manitoba Métis Federation. We've reached him in St. Laurent, Manitoba. While waiting for control tower to clear me for takeoff, I glanced out through the cockpit canopy at the German countryside, white and crisp beneath the December moon. The opening of Frederick Forsyth's classic story, The Shepherd. And that, of course, is the voice of the late, great, as it happens, co-host Alan Fireside Al Maitland. Now, As It Happens has aired that story almost every Christmas since 1979. And if you've heard it, you know it's a tour de force. Fireside Al doesn't just read the story. He brings it to life. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that? Of course you would say that. Everyone would say that. Everyone but Disney. You sure about this? You've only just got your night rating. It's a straight run across the North Sea. Perfect night for flying. Everything seems to have stacked up in your favor. Looks like you're going home for Christmas. Thank you, sir. That is from a trailer for a new short film that will premiere on Disney Plus on December 1st. The tale of an RAF pilot who's just going to zip across the North Sea for Christmas. No probs. Except guess what? Probs. That's right. Disney has made a movie of The Shepherd, written by Ian Softley, directed by Alice Rohrwacher, starring Ben Radcliffe and introducing newcomer John Travolta as the mystery pilot. He, oh, sorry, my director John is telling me John Travolta has been in other stuff. My mistake. Now, this came as a shock to us here at As It Happens. For one thing, we kind of come to feel like The Shepherd was our thing. But for another, in that trailer, you just heard the following words come up on the screen. A timeless holiday classic brought to life for the first time. Look, I know Disney wasn't likely to say a timeless holiday classic brought to life for the second time and not as well as Alan Maitland did it. But for the first time, brutal. I think you can understand why everyone here had the same reaction to this development. I felt the rage of despair welling up. I began screaming into the dead microphone, you bastards! Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. 
subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. For over 500 years, lacrosse players have been laxing across North America. That is lacrosse slang for playing lacrosse. And now, for the first time since 1908, athletes will be laxing at the Olympics. Today, the IOC announced that five sports are being added to the 2028 Los Angeles Games. Softball, squash, flag football, cricket, and lacrosse. Paul Rabel is an American former professional lacrosse player and the founder of the Premier Lacrosse League. We reached him in Los Angeles. Paul, you know uh, lacrosse is a pretty big deal uh, here in Canada. Are you ready for Canada versus USA in 2028? I am so ready (laughs) for a Canada-USA gold medal in the Olympics in Los Angeles 2028. (laughs) (laughs) You've been pushing for this for a long time. Why has it taken so long, Paul, to get lacrosse back to the Olympics? There are a lot of reasons why, as we might discuss, but having the game back into the Olympics really satisfies a few things for me. The first is, is I think any athlete looks to the global stage as the highest in aspiration, the most rewarding. Um, And so there's a personal journey and competition there. And then on the business side, I believe that Olympics and sort of global competition can give a sport scale, resources, and credibility for those rings in a way that no other competition can. And it has demonstrated that for as long as sort of Olympics were amateur competition into what they are today. Uh, So it's really special for lacrosse to have that uh, exposure, that relationship once again. What was the pitch that was made? And you were part of these efforts for a long time. What was the argument you put forward to to get to this point? (laughs) Yeah, it was robust. It was a two and a half hour pitch that we had with LA 28 committee. And, uh, and then there were loads of meetings that continued to happen with LA 28 all the way up to the IOC directly. The president of World Lacrosse, which is our governing body, Sue Redfern, she was in Mumbai last night, which was lunchtime, uh, in India and she was representing world lacrosse mm-hmm. as our sport was voted in by the IOC for LA 28. But the content, um, it was, it was multi-pronged. So the first is sort of growth of lacrosse and scale from a par- total participation of players to number of countries that are playing. So when we talk about 1904, 1908, uh, there were two teams that played both times <laughs> in the, <laughs> in the Olympic games. And then it got up to four countries. And when we were out of the Olympics, the World Lacrosse Championships were formed, and that was in 1967. It's basically our version of the World Cup. And that also started with five nations competing. Now there are over 90 uh, in, in, in countries playing in every continent around the world. So that exceeds the Olympic criteria. So we needed to show that and also show next that there was a level of parity that would make lacrosse an Olympic-spirited sport in that you uh, you have a discipline or a version of the game, which ours is sixes, and we may or may not get into that, that has been in play and has shown a level of sort of spirited equal competition among more than just U.S. and Canada. Um, so we were able to demonstrate that. We also needed to show youth, uh, diversity and inclusion, mm-hmm. uh, economic growth, 
television exposure and then cooperation from the professional leagues. Because in the past, there have been versions of sports where, let's just call it something that you all know quite well in hockey, <laughs> uh, where the Olympics butted heads with the NHL and access to players. Yeah. And Olympics, they, they, they don't want to be involved in that. So myself as one of the co-founders of the PLL being on that pitch and saying, hey, we, are, we will take time off during our season if lacrosse gets in the Olympics is also important. There's, so those are the, that's the robust, as you put it, argument, the check, the boxes you wanted to make sure and there were, were checked. And more than that. Yeah. For sure. But in terms <laughs> of you also have to show, you know, convey the love of the game that you have and try to convince these people sure. who don't love it like you do. So how did you convey that passion for the sport and what it feels like to, to play it? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's a tricky one. It's, there's an art form to it. Um, cause I, I've gone down both paths. I've, I've gone down the path of, uh, over self promotion of myself, of the sport. And what I've learned is if you can shift that into telling someone a story about what it is that you are very passionate about, that resonates. And so you start with the origin sport and, uh, there's an origin story that we all have that got us to where we are today. What excites you about the game still? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I could spend loads of time talking about the history of the sport. And, and so what, what I, with alongside my co-founder and older brother, Mike ventured off to do in starting the premier lacrosse league is professionalize the game and create opportunity thereby for its players economically. And from an exposure standpoint, um, you didn't tell me why you like playing the game, though. You're talking. You're telling me yeah. all the official stuff. When you pick up a lacrosse <laughs> stick and are on the field, how does it feel to you? Yeah, yeah. So it is. Uh, it is the perfect combination of every other sport that I played prior to my neighbor introducing me to the game and giving me his backup stick. So you have the agility and two-man game of basketball. You have the. Uh, endurance and strategy of soccer. You have the contact of football. You have the hand-eye coordination of hockey and baseball. And and then different than many team sports, you have a singular ball that everyone shares, but the rest of the equipment is sort of created based on the way that you like to tune your guitar. So we all string our own sticks, most of it at least, and tape our sticks differently. And uh, there's that personal personalization and the artisanship of the game that I think is why lacrosse players that are so obsessed with this sport (laughs) are the way they are. Paul, thank you for your time. Yeah, I really enjoyed. And uh, thanks for having me. And uh, we're just so thrilled to be on the global stage. Paul Rabel is the founder of the Premier Lacrosse League. We reached him in Los Angeles. Across the United States, governments have reached settlements with opioid manufacturers, distributors, and retailers worth billions of dollars. 
Now those governments are working on how to distribute that settlement money. It's happening in Washington, D.C. right now, where 21 commissioners have been named to sit on an opioid abatement advisory commission, trying to figure out how best to spend what's expected to be an $80 million payout. Edwin C. Chapman is a part of that group. He's a physician who's representing medical societies, and we reached him in D.C. How many patients, Dr. Chapman, are you seeing each month, people who, who are dealing with an opioid use disorder? Yes, right now we're seeing uh, 200 patients a month. And how does that compare to what you've seen in previous years? So we've actually had a, a maximum of uh, 275 patients just before COVID. Since COVID, we have uh, seen a significant uh, decrease. We're very much aware that uh, there are many more patients uh, that we uh, should be reaching, primarily because of uh, the fact that there are barriers to care, particularly uh, in Washington, but, but across the country. And that's really multifactorial. Who are the patients that are most impacted here and, and the ones who are most often losing their lives? So uh, because the United States does not have uh, universal or national health care, uh, we have varying standards from state to state. A lot has to do with the expansion of Medicaid uh, during the Obama administration. There was quite a controversy in uh, terms of uh, certain states not wanting to uh, expand uh, Medicaid. So there's that issue. Mm -hmm. And then we have uh, many different insurance companies and many types of coverage, which again uh, impacts uh, who gets care and who doesn't. So here in Washington, the African-American patient population is 46%, but African-Americans account for 85% of the overdose deaths. Uh, 74 to 75% of those deaths are in African-American males. You were profiled in the Washington Post back in the summer of 2020, and you said at that time, quote, black addicts die anonymously and, and without sympathy. So three years on now. Is there any more sympathy? No, I think it's even worse. Because of the issues post-COVID, uh, there were issues with people uh, being able to, who were on Medicaid, being able to maintain their Medicaid. And then, uh, of course, a number of people lost housing uh, during that period of time. So there's been a 12% increase in homelessness in the District of Columbia. And a third factor is the fact that uh, the District of Columbia is, uh, has been considered the fastest uh, gentrifying city in the country. So a lot of uh, African Americans uh, have lost uh, uh, housing and employment. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's worse uh, from a social standpoint as well. You, you said in that article, too, it struck me quite a bit. You said it, it's not just about the overdose. It's about the disintegration of entire communities. And what you're describing in our conversation is these are systemic problems. It's not just the case of someone getting a pill and getting hooked on it. Exactly. And uh, many of those uh, problems stem from uh, issues at the federal level um, as well as the local level. So now we're at this point where there's an opioid abatement advisory commission. You have been named as one of the 21 people who will serve on that commission. How can it help? What is it supposed to do? So there are generally two pots of money to address this. Each state uh, gets uh, money from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. Uh, the district gets about $23 million a year. The abatement funds are spread out over 18 years, 
And it's my understanding that the district expects to get about $80 million over 18 years. And the abatement committee or advisory committee is just that. It's an advisory committee that uh, helps the government uh, decide how to spend that smaller part of uh, funds. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's uh, really, we're not sure how much impact we're going to have because we're basically advising the same people who are making decisions on the larger part of uh, funds that uh, so far has been uh, ineffective. And you've been critical of of the government there for for that very reason. So how do you work around that? I mean, obviously, there's no magic solution. There's no one solution. This is a systemic problem, as you've outlined, and a large problem. But is there, are there, you know, what is at the top of your list in terms of what you need to say to them, what you need to convince them of to make sure this money does make a difference this time? So first of all, we try to bring data. We try to bring uh, scient- the latest scientific literature to the table. And then uh, we try to bring the community, uh, people who've been impacted in the community, uh, to uh, really come to these meetings and to bring it to the attention of the government that uh, that we have to make changes. These are human beings. that You want them to know that they're not statistics. Exactly. Exactly. So we can't continue to do what we've uh, been doing because it it hasn't worked. We obviously have to make changes in our approach, and uh, we need to get funds uh, closer to the people on the front lines in the community who are actually touching these patients rather than uh, having uh, uh, high-level people uh, uh, give talks and and webinars uh, Mm -hmm. that don't really reach the uh, general public. Are you concerned that there's a lot of bureaucracy involved in this as well? Or, you know, do you think that that will make things more difficult for you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's clearly politics involved. Uh, I've looked through the list. Uh, I'm not sure uh, how much experience, how much expertise uh, some of the uh, individuals have uh, and whether or not they're just uh, political placeholders. I mentioned that you've been doing this work a long time. Um, how do you deal with what is clearly frustration over the years uh, and the lack of finding the right solution over all this time? I think one of the critical components is, is media exposure and then exposure to people in the community, like the faith community, uh, like people who uh, have had uh, family members to die uh, and uh, people who have overdosed and survived. Those are the, the folks who can can bring the most uh, mm-hmm. information uh, to the table. Dr. Chapman, thank you for your time. I appreciate the uh, call. Take care. All right. Thank you. That was Dr. Edwin C. Chapman in Washington, D.C. For more than a century, the inscription on her grave said only, an Eskimo child. But thanks to a Canadian historian, that child, buried in London, England, has finally been named. Sarah Abraha Uvloriak was one of 30 Inuit people who were taken by a promoter to tour Europe in a traveling exhibition in 1899. During that tour, Sarah and two of her siblings died. 
Last month, a new gravestone was unveiled in London, and historian Ken Harper has also discovered an unmarked grave, which contains another Inuk child. We reached Ken Harper in Ottawa. Ken, what was it like for you to see that gravestone now, to see Sarah's name there? Well, um, I, of course, wasn't there except uh, on uh, on a Zoom call, but it was powerful nonetheless uh, to be part of... Uh, the ceremony for the rededication or the de- dedication of her mm-hmm. of her grave marker, uh, which finally has her name. What difference does it make that 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 name is there now? Well, I just I just think it's wrong for people to be buried anonymously. Um, especially, it was wrong because the uh, archives of the church. Uh, had her name uh, in in the death records. I want to ask you a little bit more about Sarah in a moment, but this this traveling exhibition, what was the point of this? Well, from the point of view of the promoter, the point was to make some money by exhibiting uh, humans uh, in uh, living ethnographic exhibitions, which was quite common and popular uh, around that time. From the point of view of the Inuit, uh, who lived on the Labrador coast, uh, especially on the northern part of Labrador, their communities uh, were quite poor, and so promises were made by the uh, promoter that uh, this, you know, this would be a better life uh, and a chance to earn some money and come back with some wealth from uh, from their tour of Europe. Uh, those promises were all broken, of course, mm-hmm. but the motivation from the Inuit perspective, I think, was to uh, was to seek a better life. Just if you could set the scene for us, what this exhibit would have have been like, how would these real people with real lives been portrayed? So it was a bit of a bizarre exhibition uh, in England. Um, They were taken there in 1899, and the uh, exhibition was held at the large exhibition hall in uh, Olympia, uh, west part of London, um, and it was primarily an exhibition about uh, the Boer War. But bizarrely, it featured a village almost as an afterthought where uh, the the Inuit uh, constructed their, uh, in this case, skin tents and uh, uh, went about some of the activities they might have uh, conducted back home in Labrador for the benefit of tourists uh, who were there to, quite frankly, gawk at them. It's awful just to, to hear those descriptions. Mm-hmm. These are these are human beings, and I've heard of similar exhibitions, you know, coming to to North America, um, uh, as well with other cultures. What more have you learned about Sarah? Sarah was from uh, a quite a large family, uh, and it's quite a tragic story. Um, she was born in Labrador at the mission station of Hebron in 1895, so she was. Uh, uh, four years old when she died, uh, actually four years and two days old when she died. Her father was uh, Abraham. Her mother was Juliana. They were simply ordinary people. Um, uh, Abraham would have been a hunter. Uh, but he had a number of children. There were three siblings of Sarah's who did not go to Europe. They were older. Um and uh, five children in total, including Sarah, went on this European tour. Three of them died in uh, Europe. You've also found another grave of another child who was in that same exhibition. What have you yeah. learned on that front? 
there were a couple of uh, a couple of kids that died. Uh, Sarah and one other. Her name was, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Sibylla Dina or Dina. I'm not sure. It's uh, D-I-N-A, mm-hmm. and uh, she was two years old. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know the exact date of death, but I do know the burial date. She was buried on the 10th of January, 1900. So basically two weeks after Sarah. It's a bit of a mystery to me why she was buried where she was, because the same uh, Moravian missionary, Friedrich Nestle, who was in London at the time, he was a man with Labrador experience, he conducted both burials. But for some reason, uh, Dina, uh, Sibylla Dina, was buried in a completely different cemetery, not associated with the uh, Moravians, and uh, I visited it, but there's no grave marker at all for mm-hmm. her. Uh, I know her, the, you know, the section, the row, the number, so I can physically walk to the uh, place where she was buried, but there's no grave marker. Is it your hope that, that she too will, will get a proper marked grave? I, th- I think that's a reasonable hope. Uh, I don't know how it will come to pass, but uh, I'll leave that in uh, what uh, has proven to be the capable hands of the uh, Fetter Lane congregation in London. Since the story has been getting attention, Ken, have you heard anything from you know someone who may be connected to to Sarah, her family? I have not, but I hope I will. Um, with uh, with so many siblings. Uh, it's likely that uh, you know she has uh, she has relatives uh, who are descended from some of these siblings, um, the but I haven't heard from yeah. anybody yet. Mm. Well, we'll see where all these these roads lead. Ken, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Ken Harper is a historian. We reached him in Ottawa. Depending on who you ask, the ivory-billed woodpecker hasn't been seen in nearly 80 years. Or, with a simple Google search, you can find video evidence of the bird recorded last year. But the last sighting everyone agrees on was in 1944, which is why the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was about to officially declare the ivory-billed woodpecker extinct. But today, in a decision that has the birding world aflutter, the agency announced that it will pause and give itself more time to consider the evidence. In 2021, when the U.S. government first announced the proposal to declare the bird extinct, our former host Carol Off spoke with Cornell University bird biologist John Fitzpatrick. John, does this decision by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, does it mean that we should just give up on the ivory-billed woodpecker? Yeah, well, that's a very good question, whether we should give up on a bird that's because it's called extinct uh, by a government body. Um, uh, you know, that's up to, uh, to individuals. It certainly does suggest that the government body in charge of protecting species, namely in the U.S.'s case, the Fish and Wildlife Service, has functionally given up on it because it wants to go invest in other things. Um, So I think from a federal investment standpoint, yes, there's a certain kind of finality to the idea that they're going to do any more investing in it. I think that's one of the problems in in declaring a species like the ivory-billed extinct when there is some significant continuing ambiguity about whether it really is. 
because I, I know this is something that you have been invested in, in finding if there are still sightings of this right. wonderful bird. And so when is the last time, as far as you know, that somebody may have seen an ivory-billed woodpecker? So what, what I always try to underscore in discussing this is that we, all, all we have is evidence. And uh, so there are various kinds of evidence about the persistence of this species. Those p- bits of evidence come from several different places around the southeast. In the case of the article that we published in 2005, we had seven very reliable and experienced observers who saw it personally and described it well enough to rule out other species. So we have, in our view, pretty strong evidence that the bird was there in eastern Arkansas in 2004-2005. We also have an unpublished, long recording of uh, a bird that could not be identified as anything but ivory-billed woodpecker from 2008 at the same spot. In addition to those uh, records, we have uh, continuing records particularly produced and published upon by uh, a scientist named Michael Collins of birds that he interprets as being, and others interpret as being ivory-billed woodpeckers in the Pearl River of uh, Louisiana, Mississippi. Uh, And those uh, date uh, later than our Arkansas records. Those are in the 20-teens. With all of those incredible sightings. Why would the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decide that this bird is extinct? Well, that's precisely my question, and uh, I have made it reasonably public over the last few days and will certainly, with great respect, offer my opinions during the public comment period to the Fish and Wildlife Service that this is a premature decision. Uh, The very ambiguity that we're talking about uh, should be actually underscoring the importance of keeping it on the list because it does draw attention not just to the species and the possibility that it may linger, but also to what the species represents. And we have to remember that the Endangered Species Act was created uh, with a very explicit purpose. It's actually stated in the act, namely to protect the ecosystems upon which these species depend. And the purpose of a species on the endangered species list is not just to highlight that species as a flagship, but to highlight the ecosystem that is supporting it. By keeping the ivory woodpecker on the list while we continue to search for uh, conclusive evidence of either its presence or its final absence, that continues to highlight the importance of managing the southeastern pine forests and bottomlands as if the bird were still there because, after all, it may still be. Just a bit about this ivory-billed woodpecker, because this is, I mean, just an, well, it's an extraordinary bird, but it also has, has, has mythical properties for, for people. And just what does it look like? Just describe it and why, why it's called, I guess, the Lord God bird. The Lord God bird, indeed. This was a really remarkable bird. Uh, first of all, second largest woodpecker in the Western Hemisphere and one of the very largest in the world. Um, uh, very strikingly colored and plumaged, uh, with uh, um, the males had this huge red crest, these big bold white slashes down the back, and then this this uh, very bold black and white wing pattern, uh, quite conspicuous both in flight and uh, while perched on the trunks. So big, remarkably plumaged, 
um, a bird of really majestic old forest habitats. Never very common. And so always, even back in Audubon's and Wilson's day in the early 19th century, uh, always a dramatic experience when they encountered it. Uh, and all the way through to the 20th, 20th century, when the few observers that did get to see them well commented on it, just very, very striking bird, very majestic. And, of course, its rarity and its uh, increasing sought-after qualities added sort of to the legendary or mythical status of the bird, such that when people would see it, you know, many times they, they, they actually would drop to their knees and say, oh, my God, what a bird. So it was Lord God, what a bird. Lord God bird, exactly. <laughs> That's, uh, it's, it's said that uh, Teddy Roosevelt is the, one of the ones who coined that expression. And so you have a chance, or, and you and others, uh, there's a 60-day window, I understand, to make statements d- in defense of keeping this bird and others yeah. on the, the list. So do you think yeah. there's a chance the, of reversing the, the, it? The, the rule was published today in the U.S. Uh, government Federal Register, and so beginning today there is a 60-day window for comment. Uh, we certainly, I certainly will be uh, submitting a, a comments uh, about this ruling. I, I certainly also will submit comments on some of the other species declared extinct just so that the Fish and Wildlife Service understands I'm not complaining about declaring things extinct. My view is it pays to keep this bird, this particular species on the list for a couple of really good, uh, sound, frankly, scientific uh, reasons. John, it's good to talk to you and to hear about this. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm glad you're uh, investigating it. Thanks for doing the show. From 2021, that was Carol Off speaking to Cornell University bird biologist John Fitzpatrick after the U.S. government announced a proposal to declare the ivory-billed woodpecker extinct. Today, the agency announced that it is pausing that decision indefinitely. What did Saturday's solar eclipse look like, asks USA Today. Glimpses of Saturday's eclipse visible in Winnipeg, says a CBC headline. Watch how ring of fire eclipse burned across U.S. skies, suggests the BBC. Now, clearly this weekend's annular solar eclipse was big news, and clearly the focus was on how sighted people perceived it. But the San Antonio-based organization Vibrant Works felt the focus on sight was an oversight. was audio produced by a specially made light sound box created by that Texas nonprofit with help from University of Texas at San Antonio astronomy and physics students. It's about the size of an old Walkman, if that helps you. The box measures the intensity of sunlight and creates a tone that corresponds with the impact of the moon's shadow during an eclipse. As the shadow grows, the tone deepens. As it shrinks, the tone gets higher again. According to Vibrant Works events coordinator Beverly Broom, it's a chance for everyone to get a sensory understanding of the movements of the solar system. As she told Texas Public Radio, quote, 
Being visually challenged doesn't mean you shouldn't get to experience everything that there is to experience, unquote. We love that message, not just because it's a great sentiment, but because it makes for great radio. And in that spirit, here's what this weekend's solar eclipse might have sounded like once again. sound of sunshine being stolen. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.